I think this is key for Discovery when they're thinking about how do we bring in Dr. Pimple Popper with Succession and Shazam while understanding how humans actually want to watch television for longer periods of time and how can they then discover a show that they then brings them back to the platform. I think that's a big part of the tech question that just having more content doesn't solve for. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Friday, May 26th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Alexander to talk about the launch of Max, the new HBO Discovery Franken platform, and what David Zaslov can learn from Netflix. And later, we dive into the numbers behind Netflix's cheaper new advertising tier and whether it will lead to more sitcoms. All that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander. Hello. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm good. Julia, you're the perfect person to have on the show today because you are, of course, our resident streaming expert. And there's so much happening in streaming right now. I do want to talk about the Netflix ads up front, but let's start with what's going on with HBO Max, which is now just Max. Uh, They had a very bumpy sort of glitchy launch earlier this week. Did you try it out? Did you have any trouble updating the app or logging in? I had two forms of trouble, one which was HBO's fault and one which I think just speaks to the greater issue of relying on technology for your television purposes. And the first one was, yeah, I had trouble logging into the actual Max website. Also, credit to Warner Brothers Discovery for paying whatever they paid to get max.com. I'm sure that was taken, but had trouble logging into that, running into the same issue that a lot of people ran into, which was like the login screen would just kind of spin and not actually log you in. And then I tried to download the new app because this was the other big issue, of course, was they made you download a new app instead of just updating the HBO Max app. Which is kind of crazy. We should just say, like, you'd think they would, this would be a little bit smoother, that they would have like thought this through beforehand. Right. We talk a lot a lot in Puck and our What I'm Hearing Plus articles about one of the big issues get, is getting people to actually download an app and open the app. I mean, they smartly did this before the succession finale and they smartly did this before kind of summer movie season. So there's a reason for people to go and download it. But then I ran into the issue of trying to download it on an Apple TV box, which I think both Ben and I use. And my Apple TV television box is associated with my partner's Apple ID, and he was out of the apartment. And so there was just no way to actually download it. Yeah, these are kind of first world problems. But like, this stuff matters. It matters a lot. And and like, look, there's always gonna be some glitches on launch day. We all forgot about the Obamacare launch. I think we'll eventually forget about this too. But it is actually important because it does highlight one of the big challenges that Max has and that Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav has, which is the technology here. 
Zaslav just took two huge, very different platforms with very different content libraries. He's trying to mash them together. This is the Warner Brothers assets, the Discovery assets, and, and everything that was at HBO. And as you pointed out the other day, the success of this experiment really hinges on not just how well does the service work in terms of the user experience, which was a little bit tricky the other night, but also can they build a smart recommendation engine that takes into account whether people are watching Succession or Property Brothers and how do they make that sort of a a seamless experience? Yeah, I think you hit on a bunch of really important aspects. The first one I think we should really point out because it's key to the narrative around not only the popularity of an app, but really the demand for access to an app. So to your point about first day struggles, this happens a lot. There's a really good narrative in first day struggles if we think about Disney Plus, right? When that app launched and it was crashing, Disney could go out and say, we have so much demand for this app that we actually can't keep up with it and we're working to make sure the servers are good. But if you think about what that says, it's like we have all these shows and these films that people are trying to gain access to. It's actually a really positive spin that Wall Street's really into because it really shows that heightened demand and heightened usage. This app experiment, when they're trying to launch an app, people aren't really able to log in. It's not that the site is crashing or the app is crashing. It's just really poor tech stack kind of experiencing these first day glitches, which to Ben's point happens, happens across the board at at any major um, company, is less indicative of demand and more indicative of a really rushed rollout, in my opinion. And so I think it kind of blends into this issue of like, well, if we're looking at streaming and kind of controlling the distribution pathway as a tech company, something that a lot of the content companies, especially something or someone like David Zaslav, who is overseen cable channels, but has overseen that as a content just creator, not necessarily as the distributor, which comes from Comcast or Spectrum or whatever it might be. When we think about how he and his teams approach actually managing the tech stack and managing the tech aspect and the recommendations, a lot of that is crucial to the success of a platform. Netflix is a company that focuses a lot of its concentration on the tech aspect. They run more than 400 A-B tests a year to ensure that they're getting the best recommendations out. For for almost every piece of content, they have 30 to 40 different visuals for the icons, the actual thing that you see while you're going across in order to appeal to as as many different audiences as possible or to find the best way to bring audiences in. This is something that when you're running a cable network, you're not necessarily worried about. You're you're not worried about, well, how is this going to appear as people are scrolling through their TV guide? But it is something in an intent-based streaming ecosystem that you do have to think about. And the other aspect of this, with especially with Warner Brothers Discovery and Max, is you have to understand and really pursue the contextual recommendations, not just the algorithmic recommendations. This is something I write about often in the puck pieces. And so Ben has read this many times as as a great editor, but this idea that you have to program for what humans want, not necessarily program along the idea of, well, if they watch this show, they'll therefore like this similar show. The example I always use with Ben is, if you watch The Handmaid's Tale, you don't want to watch necessarily The Handmaid's Tale afterwards, or you don't want to watch something that's really heavy and dark. You want to watch something like Rick and Morty or Modern Family. You want something that's kind of lighthearted. On broadcast, on linear television and cable, you had teams that curated this, they programmed it. They were like, here's how we're going to try and set up these blocks of television to keep people engaged. With streaming, if you rely too much on these kind of machine learning algorithms, they tend to lean into the algorithmic side, which means that you might get recommendations of movies and shows that are similar, but you're not necessarily gonna increase that engagement time or that consumption time. And so I think this is key for discovery when they're thinking about how do we bring in Deadliest Catch or Dr. Pimple Popper with Succession and Shazam, this idea of like, well, 
understanding how humans actually want to watch television for longer periods of time and how can they then discover a show or a film that wants that they then brings them back to the platform. I think that's a big part of the tech question that just having more content doesn't solve for. I'm so glad you brought this up because I've been feeling more and more like in the media, we're seeing this sort of false distinction between like the succession viewer and the person who's watching diners, drive-ins and and dives. And that sort of false dichotomy is is part of the reason why there is some doubt about this experiment of taking these two, three huge content libraries and mashing them together into this new thing called Max, which is going to be this like gross bula base of, yeah, the Dr. Pimple Popper and also the upscale old HBO shows. But to your point, Julia, it does feel like that narrative sort of doesn't take into account how people actually watch TV. I'll, I'll proudly raise my hand and say that, you know, I, I love some of those HGTV shows. I also watch Succession. I also watch White Lotus. And of course, Netflix has been doing this exact same thing forever. This is their model. They have Roma, but they also have anime and they have like Swedish murder mysteries and they have the Indian matchmaking show. And it works because the interface is actually smart enough to know that you're watching a bunch of those things and it can figure out what you might want to watch next. So it does seem like maybe some people in the media and maybe some people on Wall Street are sort of underestimating how much potential success can be unlocked here by this combination. Yeah, I think there is this idea, and I want to preface this by saying, obviously, Ben and I are big HBO fans. HBO is a very successful network. It's a profitable network. It has been on a extremely strong run over the last year or so, last two years, you know, even compared to kind of the five, six years before it. HBO is a small network. It's, it's a very specific group of people who are watching it. Even if you look at the succession numbers, which are the highest for the season, that's still nothing compared to a young Sheldon. It's nothing compared to a Big Bang Theory or even a South Park. And so when we think about what these types of shows are gaining this kind of at scale audience on Max, it's not necessarily the HBO programming. That HBO programming is really key to ensuring that you have these high quality prestige series and that HBO programming is really great for word of mouth and getting people to open it up Sunday. But if we think about these streaming services becoming their own glorified cable packages, HBO was always a network you added onto your cable package. It was you paid extra for it and you were glad to have it, but then you might also be interested in basketball and you might be watching NCIS, you might be watching whatever you're watching, who is this add-on. What Max is effectively doing is saying, well, HBO is our big add-on. It is a crown jewel. It is very much a staple of what we're doing and that's why people are paying the $15, but we want to scale beyond that. And we need to scale beyond that because we have advertisers who want to reach the highest level of eyeballs. We want to be able to kind of continue growing our subscriber base so that way we can generate stronger average revenue per user and kind of increase those prices as we see more value come in. And that really relies on this kind of general entertainment programming. I think the bigger issue actually facing HBO Max and Discovery as, as or sorry, now just Max, of course, those things that have kind of combined is this idea that if you look at David Zaslav and his company, he's kind of looking at he's got these great cable networks that are fantastic and that are very popular, but the cable ecosystem is effectively dying out, right? We know that it is. There was a great report mm. from our colleague at Puck, Dylan Byers, who was talking about if Disney, you know, really launches this ESPN OTT, what happens to the cable bundle, right? Cable is this beautiful socialistic environment where even if you were the worst performing channel, you still got paid decently because ESPN was in it and all these big sports channels and CNN and whatever it might be. ESPN goes OTT, if the cable bundle falls at an even highly more accelerated rate, if your discovery that's really impactful. So you kind of need this general entertainment programming and the prestige programming from Warner Brothers to kind of 
build up this idea of well, we're going to have a, a future as as this collection of discovery cable That's networks. That's a great point. It's it's also a it's a lifeboat for those channels. They need streaming as much as, uh, as as streaming needs them. Exactly. And if you think again about that cable bundle, if it starts to collapse, HBO needs to kind of attach itself to this kind of other general entertainment programming or go completely niche, kind of be HBO now. But the way that we see this kind of consolidation going forward, the way that we see the bundling going forward, the best thing that you could do is actually launch an app that collects kind of these highbrow, lowbrow, multi-audiences and hope that there's enough sufficient content and sufficient tech recommendations to increase that audience and double down on that audience to increase acquisition and reduce churn. That said, I don't know if Max was the best name for it, but you kind of see where they're going with, with what they're trying to do. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how long the Max name sticks around. Obviously, there, there used to be HBO and then HBO Go and HBO Now. <laughs> I don't remember which came first. Then HBO Max and now just Max. And as you and I were just joking before we were recording, who knows how long that'll stick around. I mean, if Warner Brothers Discovery ends up merging with some other entity like NBCU uh, with Comcast, as uh, some of us here at Puck have been predicting, who knows how long the Max name will even last. That might just be sort of a, a temporary name for this holding company of assets before they get merged into some other thing. So all of this is, is, is changing and happening really fast. Julia, I want to go to break and then we can talk more about Netflix and their advertising tier when we get back. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking. I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. Are. Pancakes, I love pancakes, more than waffles, more than French toast. A couple of my favorites so far, the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites. I love egg bites. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals, factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. So sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. So, Julia, I wanted to get your thoughts on Netflix, which they just did this upfront presentation for the first time. This is their pitch to advertisers on this new cheaper plan that they've added where you pay a little bit less, but you've got to watch ads. What do you think about the the numbers they were putting out so far? And are they off to a promising start? So the 
issue with the Netflix upfronts, just get this out of the way, was not necessarily on Netflix. It was kind of on, I don't want to use the term the media, but it was kind of on the media for this misinterpretation of the numbers. And then to their credit, Netflix didn't go out and correct it for them. A lot of headlines ran with Netflix boasts 5 million subscribers or customers kind of on this ad tier. Um, when actually what the number they used was, was monthly active users. I wrote about this for Puck and it, it feels pedantic, except that if you look at how they judge monthly active users, they look at the number of profiles on an account. And so based on the number of profiles, they can kind of say, well, there's two users, three years, there's four years, whatever it might be um, that are engaging with the advertising tier. Part of the reason that they do this is so that way they can ensure that the kids' accounts are not receiving ads on their content, which is very important. We see a lot of other companies kind of doing something similar. But then if you think about that from a numbers perspective, how many of those users are therefore kind of paying uh, for the tier? How many of those users are actively engaged with the tier? How many of those users are cannibalized from the ad free tier that are coming over. There's all these big questions that speak to the adoption of the advertising tier that I think we don't really get out of that upfront. And to Netflix's credit and every other company's credit, as our colleague Matt Bellany pointed out in a recent column, the upfronts are kind of this masterful exercise in, in BSing, right? It's kind of this beautiful, like we have the best content, you should be on our content. If you're not, you're going to lose out. Netflix has the scale. And so advertisers want to be there. But in terms of, oh, this is a really strong moment for Netflix out of the gate, I'm still a little weary on it. Well, they did have this word active, right? They did say monthly active users. So presumably they're not counting, you know, if, if your account has like four or five different accounts on it, but only two of them are getting used, they're not counting all of them, right? I mean, this is part of the question. This is what gets so difficult with advertising transparency. If we think about, you know, it's funny because we look at, at Netflix coming out here and really saying, here's our monthly active users, which is a term that anyone who follows Facebook or YouTube or Twitter is very accustomed to. That's the exact metric that they use for advertisers. And it's very confusing, though, as to like, well, how are you actually asserting that it's, you know, this person or this person and how many active profiles on this account are actually watching versus they just have those accounts. I can say on my Netflix account, I've got six profiles, only three are active. Three we set up just, you know, one for a grandparent, one for another, if they wanted access to it, but they're not actively using the accounts when I go over to their house and I want to watch something on Netflix. And so I think there's all these different questions about the validity of these profiles, but I want to be very clear, this is not something that is unique to Netflix. I mean, every single company has these same issues. If you kind of look at how a lot of daily active users or monthly active users are judged within tech or even within entertainment, you're looking at kind of app downloads, you're looking at logins, all of these different aspects of it come with a, a margin of error. And so I don't actually necessarily even think that this is the most problematic aspect for Netflix. I think it really creates an, a conversation about the issues that Netflix faces in the coming months ahead, the coming years ahead with this advertising tier, and also the opportunities that Netflix faces, especially in the global market. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the smoke and mirrors with this stuff is going to get worse in the coming months and years because it used to be with Netflix that what you actually cared about was how many people have subscriptions, how many people are paying, because we know that the number of people who are actually using Netflix, logging in, is way, way, way bigger than the number of people who are giving money to Netflix, which is part of why they want to crack down on passwords. With advertising, it's sort of flipped, right? I mean, the number that advertisers care about is how many people are watching. They don't care how many people are paying Netflix, how many people have subscriptions, if you have one account and 10 people are watching, that's great. That's 20 eyeballs. 
Yeah, and I think too, if we look at how advertisers used to judge the impact of their ads on television, they relied heavily on Nielsen, right? Which is an analytics bureau that is designed for the advertisers really. And even then it was an estimation of people in a household tuning into a specific program at a specific time. And so we've always used an estimated idea of like, well, this is how many people might be tuning in to watch this. And so that's why we use households, right? That's very much why we say, well, there's many households tuned into this and then we can do an average of maybe 2.5 people in a household and then you try to get a number from that. And so Netflix in that way is kind of going back to the old guard of of how things have always worked. And I think that's very much, well, this is how the advertisers still value things. And so we're going to talk, I mean, they said this in their upfronts, we're kind of, we're going to speak in terms that speak to advertisers. I think what's really curious about Netflix, and this is, I think, one of the bigger problems is if you look at kind of its key market, which is United States and Canada, it's a very, very, very small percent, about 1%, maybe just a little bit under 1% or just a little bit over 1% of people within the United States and Canada that have the ability to sign up for ads have signed up for ads. On the other hand, they've got this huge number of subscribers, the biggest out of all the major streamers um, that are paying for the ad-free tier. I think this is kind of this double-edged sword with Netflix. We know, according to Netflix's recent financial uh, statement within their earnings, we know that the blended subscription offering, which is ads and subscription, is generating more average revenue per member than the ad-free tier. This is not too dissimilar from what we see with Hulu. This is something that um, Kevin Mayer, who's the former head of Disney streaming, is now the head of Candle Media. He has spoken about publicly many times where that combination, that blended tier, was extremely lucrative to Hulu. It's why they try to push people towards that. It's why Disney is going to try to push people towards this kind of ad-supported bundle. Um, And so Netflix would really actually love for people to go there, even if it's cannibalized, even if they lose a subscriber on the ad-free tier, they're actually, if they're generating more revenue on the ad-supported tier, then it works out in their favor. I think the problem in their kind of tier one markets where they're seeing the highest level of revenue at this moment is the fact that you've trained audiences for so long to not want advertisements. And they haven't rolled out advertisements in the best way, I would say. There's mid-roll ads that kind of just cut off and it's, it's not a, a really great experience. And versus when you look at Peacock or Paramount Plus, a lot of their shows are designed with ads in mind. And so it's a much more typical experience if you've come from linear television. And also, if Netflix is still the most used streaming service in a household, which we can assume that it is alongside kind of YouTube, um, because we can look at the Nielsen Gage, which reported last month that Netflix made up 6.9% of all streaming time, which is the highest of any streaming service. If you kind of think about it from your own anecdotal perspective, if you are going to, you know, kind of pay the most money for the most used service and you want the best experience from it, you might make Netflix your ad-free one and then have Peacock or Paramount Plus or Hulu be ad-supported because you're not using it as often so you don't mind watching the ads on it. I know, for example, in our household, Peacock is used primarily for sports. It's ad-supported. We don't really care, my partner and I, um, versus Netflix is going to remain ad-free. HBO Max will remain ad-free because we use them so often. And so if you think about all these factors, the culture of streaming around Netflix in the US is much different than the culture of streaming internationally. And so the ad tier that I'm really curious about from a numbers perspective is kind of the international adoption, especially in these markets that are really hard to penetrate. Because in the US, they kind of have this moment of reigning king, which has, again, become this catch-22 for them in this in this situation. Yeah, it's such a fascinating point. And it's, and it's interesting, too, because it's so counterintuitive to people who are not as familiar with this industry that Netflix actually makes more money per user from the cheaper plan. They don't necessarily want people going to the premium plan anymore. 
especially right now when we're in a sort of depressed ad rate CPM environment, presumably they're going to make even more money from ads in the future when that market rebounds and as the back end technology gets better. Julia, last thought from you. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I imagine there's going to be pressure on Netflix um, from Wall Street and also internally to push people to basically downgrade their plans so that they're making more money from the ads. But I'd love to get an early prediction from you, too, about whether Netflix programming itself is going to change. I mean, you can kind of imagine that in this future where they're more reliant on ads that maybe they want more like 25 episode season multi-camera sitcoms. It does sort of feel like in streaming, we're seeing traditional TV be reinvented and and recreated in real time. Yeah, I think I just want to add one last thought to our last conversation just now. Uh, I will say the other catch-22 with Netflix adopt uh, customers not really adopting the ad-supported tier as well as advertisers may have liked, to your point about the CPM, is that if their audiences are not on the ad-supported tier, then that CPM drops because there's not they're not reaching the audience that Netflix has promised them, which we've already seen some headlines about. We've seen some stories about Netflix having to say, we promised you more viewers on this tier because of our subscriber base. We're actually not not really seeing that. So that's another issue. If they can't get people over to that ad supported tier, it doesn't matter that they have, you know, 75, 80 million subscribers in the US. To your exact point, all advertisers care about is, well, are they watching ads? Is that something that we that we worry about? I think to your question now, on the one hand, yes, you will see Netflix get more into procedurals. You'll see Netflix get more into comedy sitcom as much as they can because advertisers like to be on those types of shows, advertisers can be written more easily into those shows. If you think about, again, like what ABC, CBS, NBC does, think about Blackish, right, or, or even a Modern Family. Those are great examples of shows that did advertising super well. The advertisers were almost in the room uh, to, to really make sure that their impact landed. Will you see that kind of 24 episodes return? I imagine the Writers Guild would love that. But I think you won't. I think Mm -hmm. they realize that most audiences have the attention span of about 10 episodes. This was not something that Netflix pioneered. HBO did this before Netflix. Showtime did this before Netflix. Netflix just realized we can do shorter and not lose our audience uh, as we might with the 22 episode, 24 episode. But I do think the actual genres will return in some capacity. You know, Netflix did The Ranch with um, with Ashton Kutcher. It ran for like seven seasons. You know, and that show by all metrics did like decently for them. You kind of have uh, Fuller House, which did four seasons. You've got that 90 show. So these shows are returning in some capacity and advertisers really like this show. You know, do they want to pursue having a Grey's Anatomy? Will they just pay extra to license Grey's Anatomy? Um, like they're doing with The Walking Dead from AMC, where they paid a lot of money to the AMC to have The Walking Dead. I think you might see more of that because those are those take more time to kind of really make work and there's less opportunity to really just delve into it. And there's already a great number of assets available from all these other companies and networks who are now looking to license their shows or license out a number of seasons from those shows. So I think you'll see Netflix really pull those series in, offer them on the ad supported tier and kind of split that ad inventory and ad revenue with with their partners. Um, As long as it brings people to the tier, they're happy. But I do think the programming will shift slightly to to more traditional linear, but not by episode count. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how this all unfolds. Um, forget about the medium as the message. It seems like with Netflix and with these streamers, like the revenue model is the programming or, or it will determine the programming. But we'll see how it plays out. Julia, we've got to leave it there. Thanks so much for stopping by. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, 
Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Have you heard of Nordic Knots? The Scandinavian rug company that has become the insider brand gracing some of the most beautiful homes around the world? With rug designs by some of the world's leading designers and a signature collection of wool and jute rugs in modern colors? But Nordic Knots is not just about great design. Their mission is to make quality rugs that last, with no compromises. Goodweave certified, handmade pieces woven in all natural materials. At NordicKnots.com, it's easy to find a rug that's just right. A curated collection in lots of colors and sizes to choose from. Even custom sizes are possible. So, whether you're the type who loves the understated elegance of their luxury essentials or the bold statements from their top designer collaborations, you can't really go wrong. Oh, and don't tell anyone, but right now, you can get a free sample with the code INNERCIRCLE. NordicKnots.com.